So tell us, what was Brigham Young's policy? His policy um, was that it was better to feed the Native Americans than it was to fight them. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we're going to be discussing Chapter 13 of Saints, Volume 2, and it's called By Every Possible Means. And today we're joined by Chelsea Henry, an archivist with the Church History Library. Welcome, Chelsea. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So Chelsea, tell us a little bit more about your role and what you're currently doing. So as an archivist, I catalog incoming records and I enhance the catalog so that researchers, when they come into the library, can find the records and find exactly what they're looking for. And also our listeners might be interested to know you are a master's candidate at Arizona State University yes. working on your history degree specializing in the history of the Ute people. Mm-hmm. We are excited to have you with us because today we're going to talk a little bit about interactions between the pioneers, the early settlers, the Latter-day Saint settlers in the Utah area and their interactions with Native peoples. So, Chelsea, how did you become interested in this topic? Why, why did you study this area? I started studying this area when I found out that one of my ancestors had adopted a little Native American boy. He was sold to the family for a horse and a gun. And so I, I wanted to learn more. And I, like you, was super surprised at first to find out that this had been a thing um, and that the slave trade was such an active part of early Utah history. And so I researched his life and he came and according to the family stories, which really can't be proven one way or the other, his parents sold this little boy, Sylvester or Vet to my great-great-great-grandparents, James and Rowana. And so they, they took him and they raised him actually in various parts of what became Nevada and southern Utah. And he grew up as just one of the children. Um, and then once he reached adulthood, he decided to go back to some Native peoples. I, I'm not entirely sure if they were his, but he married a woman in Arizona. I believe she was a Pima, according to the family stories, um, which is a, a Native American group down there. And they had a child. And after a while, he decided to come home and, and visit his adopted mother. And he ended up catching smallpox and dying. Oh. Yeah, and I was actually able to trace which smallpox epidemic was the one that killed him um, because there had been an immigrant group and one of the people in that group happened to be in the beginnings of smallpox. And so he spread it around that colony. And so Sylvester died. And about a year later, his wife and child came up and lived with Rowana for a year. And they lost the baby. But I always thought it was absolutely incredible that this Native American woman just came up and visited her mother-in-law. <laughs> what a fascinating story. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, but what a neat personal connection you have. Yeah. But to start off, we are going to go clear across the sea and meet a young Danish girl named Augusta Dorius. What can you tell us about Augusta? Um, well, Augusta is a super interesting character in history. She came over super young from Denmark, and most of her family stayed behind for quite a while. Some of 
whom were not actually interested in the church. And then she joined the saints, about 200 Danish saints in Salt Lake City. It was interesting to read how in this chapter, when these Danish saints arrived, I'm sure she felt like, oh, here's my people. They speak my language. They know my customs. And I wasn't surprised to learn that when they all went off to go to Springtown in what would later become San Pete County, she decides to go with them. Oh, yeah, I definitely would have. <laughs> well, because she, at this point, she's a fairly young teenager still, mm-hmm. right? She's about 15. And her mom hadn't joined the church and it actually caused her parents to get divorced, if our readers might remember this, that we've right. kind of followed her brothers as missionaries. But she came by herself. And so, of course, she would feel so comfortable and want to be with them. And she gets married at a pretty darn young age, at least for today's standards. At the time, maybe 16 wasn't you know particularly shocking. That was... A common age. Yeah. Um, on the young end, for sure, but still not uncommon. But at 16, she marries a man named Henry Stevens. And she was actually a second wife to him. So let's talk about her experience in deciding to accept his marriage proposal. Well, first of all, like you said, she was 16 years old, um, which I think is just incredible. And she had received a few marriage proposals, but she thought she was way too young for marriage. Um, But then she was offered marriage by Henry Stevens, who was already married. Um, So she became the the second wife, and um, she chose. She thought about it. She thought through what she had seen. There were a lot of other plural families, marriage families, in San Pete. And so from what she had seen and having a lot of other choices, she did choose to marry Henry, even though she didn't know Mary Ann, his his first wife, very well. Well, and I think it's like anything. She just kind of was informed about her decision because she saw people who were thriving in plural marriages mm-hmm. and people who it was found it very difficult and very lonely. And so I think that she made the conscious decision out of faith. And I just think that's such a great example. Yeah. What's life like for them? Um, it was not easy, that's for sure. Colonizing that area, it, it's it's the desert, so it's pretty dry. They had been invited down there by Chief Wakara, um, a Ute leader, and when they arrived, they had fairly good relations with the Utes, but the Utes were kind of headed towards some, the word that comes to my mind is tiffs. They were having Yes, some disagreements over resources, especially. And so while they're setting up that area, war comes to them pretty quickly. I just want to know, so we're in the Utah Territory at this time, but I kind of want to know what are Indian relations like in the United States during this time? That depends completely on which region and which tribe you're talking about. In the West, a lot of the Western United States at that point was fairly new to the United States. And the Western tribes, because um, Mexico and the Spanish before them, didn't infiltrate very far into the territory. So like Utah Territory hadn't been seen by very many non-Native peoples, except for trappers, traders, and then the occasional immigrants. And so the Utes, the Comanches, the Apaches were very warlike. They kept the Mexicans down further south. Um, and made it impossible for them to come any further north. So when the United States comes in, they have a lot of tribes who are used to kind of 
making the rules for that area. Was the Indian settler relationship in Utah different than, say, Texas or Colorado or Wyoming? Was there anything unique about interactions here or was it about the same? Yes and no. It was about the same. The unique parts would be the church's policy towards the Native Americans. Especially in the early days, they considered all Native Americans to be descendants of the Book of Mormon, so all children of Lehi. But they also had all of the prejudices that came in that century. So the policy that Brigham Young implemented was far more benevolent than a lot of other territorial leaders. But the actual practice individually was just that. It was individual. So you had people who were more supportive of Brigham Young's policy and then people who had a very difficult time implementing that. So tell us, what was Brigham Young's policy? His policy um, was that it was better to feed the Native Americans than it was to fight them. Let's, in fact, listen to a little quote here from the book that talks about this counsel that he gave to the saints. Brigham likewise counseled the saints not to seek revenge if Indians took horses, cattle, or other property from them. Shame on you if you feel like killing them, he said. Instead of murdering them, preach the gospel to them. Unfortunately, we do know that some people did kill Native Americans in that area. Can you tell us the story about Old Bishop? Yes. This is, to me, it's one of the sad things, you know, it's, hiding behind a lie. But anyway, tell us what happens and go from there. Okay. Old Bishop was uh, a Native American, a leader of one of the bands in the area. And he came into Provo in what one of the colonists thought was his shirt. And so they had a disagreement. They pulled Old Bishop off of this horse and he was killed. But they were uncomfortable with what they had done. And so they tried to hide it. And they buried his body in the bottom of the river during one of the Ute social gatherings of the year. So there were thousands of Utes in the Provo area. Probably not their wisest decision. Mm. And did Brigham Young find out about this or did they try and keep it from him or how did that go? They actually tried to keep it from him. And he did not know when he issued the order for retaliation that it had started with the colonists of Provo. So they kept that from him for several years before someone finally told him what had happened. This is just one of those times, you know, I I swear it comes up in the scriptures and in modern life as well when someone attempts to cover up a lie and then there's just all of these horrible consequences that you go back and you think, man, it sure would have been better to just be upfront and say what happened and what a lot of pain, especially on the Native American side, but but also for the settlers, because then there's these counterattacks. It's just a sad chapter there um, in our history. It really is, and it led to a lot of issues later on. Tell us what happens at a place called Chicken Creek with Wakara. Chicken Creek. So Wakara had led, or at least started, what came to be known as the Walker War. And that lasted for a little bit. And then Brigham Young started offering peace overtures. And Wakara was like, all right, but you're going to have to come to me. So Brigham Young came down to Chicken Creek and he talked with Wakara and they were able to work out a peace agreement. And the volume tells us he smoked a peace pipe (laughs) with the chief. I don't know what exactly that means. I do know that the word of wisdom wasn't exactly 
they were not practicing or following the teachings in the same way we are. And our listeners have heard us talk about that before. You can read the church history topic on Word of Wisdom. I thought that was kind of a cool little episode where Brigham smokes a peace pipe and tries to like reestablish this peace. Something I thought that was interesting about this peace agreement is that when Brigham Young first went to meet Wakara, his daughter, Wakara's daughter was very ill and Wakara actually asked for a blessing from Brigham Young. So how did he even know to ask for that and what happened? So Native Americans by that point had been exposed to a lot of different aspects of the gospel. The Ute tribe in particular has an aspect where they seek after anyone who has any sort of power. And so a blessing was kind of related and incorporated into their own beliefs at that time period. And so when they sought a blessing, it was just like any of us seeking for help, inspiration. A lot of the times, because of the diseases that had been introduced with the colonists, it was to, to save lives. They had lots of children and um, families were dying at that time. You mentioned earlier that this experiences with the Native Americans were individual. Mm-hmm. Some terrible, like this episode with Old Bishop, but others were more compassionate. And I love how in the book we meet a woman by the name of Matilda Dudley. Can you tell us her story and, and what her interactions with the Native peoples was like? Matilda Dudley had been a prisoner. She was taken captive by Natives further east. And then her and her mother were released, and she came across to the Salt Lake City. But during that time period, she started to notice that the women and children, especially of the various tribes, were suffering. So she decided to form Indian Relief Societies, which Brigham Young really started to push after 1853. And she was in such a unique circumstance where she could have been more like felt more hostile, I think, having such horrible things happen to her family at such a young age. But then she also got the perspective of living with them and understanding their culture and where they were coming from. And I think she was such an amazing example to raise money and make clothing and and things like that. I loved what Brigham Young says to Matilda and some other women that were in these efforts. He said, seek by every possible means to reach the Indians with a peaceful message. And we also read that there were so many men that were called to preach to these Native Americans. And so I'm just wondering, why was there so much emphasis placed on missionaries to the Indians? And it was kind of, they were pulling back missionaries from other places, right, to focus here. Tell us about that. So because of the Book of Mormon and the knowledge that Native Americans are descendants of Lehi, there is a huge emphasis to bring them back to the knowledge of their fathers. And so that was a big push for missionaries of the time period. And they called people to learn the language, learn the culture, really get to know them and to help them understand what the saints understood about their ancestors. And so it, it had started way earlier back in the founding of the church, and it continued into the Utah period. So there was a huge push to help them learn not only the gospel, but also how to farm and to acclimate or acculturate. Another part of Matilda's legacy is the fact our listeners might remember, Relief Society stopped after Nauvoo. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, there aren't organized relief societies in every ward and branch like we would expect today. And her... Indian Relief Societies became another 
planting of the seed that eventually we would have a reorganization of the Relief Society, a, a reflowering of the Relief Society here in Utah. And I, to me, I love the fact that some of those roots come from wanting to help the Native peoples. I think that's a unique part of our history. Oh, yeah. So Chelsea, there's another aspect of the relationship or these interactions between Native people and the settlers, which I found a little bit confusing, and I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about. We learn about this phrase, in indentured servitude or Indian slavery. What's going on with that even before the saints arrive here and then when they arrive here with this, these practices? What, what is this? So Native American culture has always had some form of, sometimes slavery might be too strong of a word, but they have a habit of, you know, picking up people when they're raiding other tribes and either incorporating them into their own tribe or selling them. And with the arrival of the Spanish, the Spanish had already started that kind of a trend with some of the more southern tribes, um, such as those at Taos. But with their ability to go further into Ute territory, they were able to establish a thriving slave trade. So by the time the saints arrived in the valley, this slave trade was over 100 years old. It was very well established into the culture. And Wakara, who we've talked a little bit about, um, he was a big proponent of this practice. He, his tribe got a lot of their wealth through the selling of other tribes. It seems weird to think about it this way, but it really was a significant part of their economy. Oh, yeah. From my understanding, after learning a little more about this, when the slave trade was going to be shut down, that it wasn't going to be legal in Utah territory, that had a dramatic impact on their economy. They needed to change the way they do things because they were getting revenue or resources in the slave trade. And, and that must have impacted them in some way. Oh, yeah. It decimated a lot of the different bands. Um, they got a lot of their material culture. Um, horses were a huge part of the tribe economy. And one of the biggest ways that they were able to get tribes was raiding or trading for slaves. What about this idea of indentured servitude? In the book, we learned that some of the saints... They got children as indentured servants. That seems weird. It does, especially from our perspective now. But what happened is shortly after the saints arrived in the valley, some Native Americans from the Utes or the Shoshones showed up with some children that they expected to have the same relationship that they had with Mexico with these new arrivals. And so they showed up with these children and they said, we, we want to sell you these kids. And the saints were like, eh, we're not really big into slavery. And so after some, some hesitation, they were kind of forced into it. Um, one of the tactics that a lot of um, the slave traders would do is if the person they were trying to trade with wouldn't exchange for the child, they would kill it. So that pretty quickly established uh, a need to acquire these kids, um, to, to save them either from death, mistreatment, and it also became a way to introduce them into the gospel. 
Thank you for that explanation. It's it's really helpful. And I would also invite our listeners, there is a, a wonderful short essay on indentured servitude and Indian slavery at the church history topic section of the Gospel Library. You'll learn there when the practice sort of started with the saints, as Chelsea has just explained to us, how long it went on, what were the parameters, and when that practice faded out. And, and I found that particularly helpful because this is just something I just had really never um, had heard about before. So thank you for sharing that. And another part of our story is happening way across the Pacific in Hawaii with a young man named Joseph F. Smith. Who is Joseph F.? Now, we know him later. We all sang the song in primary, <laughs> right? But at this point, who is Joseph F.? And what's his experience been like? Well, Joseph F. Smith um, is the son of Hiram Smith. So his childhood is pretty well scarred with the death of his father and the prophet Joseph Smith. How old was he when his dad was murdered? He was five. Five years old. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine. <laughs> So he remembers his dad, I mean, a five-year-old, but he was still very, very young. Yes. And he came across with... With his mother. And she is one of those amazing stalwarts. And she was able to bring her family across the plains faster than their captain. And unfortunately, she died shortly thereafter. So he was kind of... An angry youth, I guess is the best way to put it. But that inspired them to call him at the age of 15 to a mission, which is something I don't think I could imagine doing. There's a quote in the book that I'm paraphrasing. It basically says, Joseph F. could have chosen to follow this anger down one path, but he chose to accept a mission call. I think that tells us a little bit about his character. What else do we learn about his character as he moves across the West and makes his way to Hawaii? I would definitely say endurance. Upon getting to Hawaii, he felt pretty sick, and he had no idea what anyone around him was saying, but the love of the people really pulled him into that missionary zeal. And they were so excited because he was the son of Hiram Smith and the nephew of the prophet Joseph Smith. And so they really were just looking forward to hearing from him. So his name preceded him oh, yeah. <laughs> in his missionary service. No pressure, right? Right. <laughs> he wrote a letter home to George A. Smith. And let's listen to a little clip here of what he said. I am happy to say that I am ready to go through thick and thin for this cause in which I am engaged. He wrote George A. Smith and truly hope and pray that I may prove faithful to the end. I don't know about you guys, but I thought maybe as a 15-year-old, he's kind of trying to put on a little bit of a brave face here. I remember writing a few letters like that myself when I was terrified, but I didn't really want to tell everybody at home that I was terrified. <laughs> but I think that would be so hard for a young man of that age. But what was his experience like? It was good. I mean, he was able to apply a lot of the things he had learned through his childhood with the creation of various settlements and to what they were doing in Hawaii with the settlement at Lanai. I just love, once again, from his letter to George A. Smith, that he was ready to go through thick and thin, and he was, he was just going to do it. And I think that can just be a lesson to everybody. 
I mean, not everybody goes on missions and not everybody was described as having white hot anger when they were 10 or 15. But it's just incredible that I think this missionary service was probably a real turning point in his life. But it's yeah. because he made the decision to really dive into the language, to really learn and, and be able to teach the gospel. And then he became a prophet. It's incredible. It's quite a transition we see there from what was an angry young man to this missionary who's now committed to the cause. And it's going to be so much fun in future episodes to follow his path, um, not only in Saints Volume 2, but even into Saints Volume 3 when he becomes president of the church. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for being here with us today. We appreciate you and and all that you have shared with us today. We'd invite our listeners. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. And you can always find our latest topics, videos, and resources at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.